Right, open with me, if you would, to Matthew's Gospel. And this time we really are finishing up chapter 13. I misspoke last time. The beginning of the end for Jesus, this this section, in the sense that um, He gets rejected in His hometown. And then we'll see next time we're in the Word in Matthew. He hears about Matthew's rejection from Herod. And then He begins to go away to some quiet places to disciple his disciples and teach them, um, withdraws a bit before he makes his final trek to Jerusalem where he will be crucified for us all. So that's kind of where we're at in the big picture of Matthew. And why don't we stand together as we read this section, Matthew 13, uh, 13 verses 53 to 58. Hear the word of God to you this morning. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where, did, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, One basic truth that has been borne out in my own personal experience, as well as the experience of so many other brothers and sisters in Christ who have shared their experiences with me, is this. More often than not, the most difficult people to share the gospel with is those of our own family. Right? And to extend that, those from our own town that we grew up in, especially those of us who came from smaller towns where everybody knows everybody's business. Um, It's a truth, a universal truth. And as we come to the last section of Matthew 13, we find that even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Himself was not exempt from that general rule. The text tells us that When he had finished teaching the parables, he moved on from there. He came to his hometown of Nazareth to teach in their synagogues. Think about this. As he has taught in so many other synagogues. So now he's excited as it were. He's going back to his hometown to share the love of God, to share about who he is and why he's come. Just like he's been sharing abroad and now he's home. Right? It should be kind of an exciting thing to tell your your, your own uh, homeboys, as it were, the truth of God and, and his love. Instead of getting that grand hometown boy done good. Do you ever see American Idol? How many people have ever seen American Idol? You know when they t- the, the winners come home to their town and they have parades for them and everything like that. Well, instead of getting that kind of reception, he found actually great unbelief and great rejection. Painful rejection. And as we'll see in just a few minutes, Jesus knew ahead of time. Think about this. This is something that if you just read the text and you don't really think through it a little bit, you might miss this point. But Jesus knew ahead of time that they were going to reject Him. And still, He wanted to share the love of God with them at least one more time. 
before he had to make that trek to hang on the tree for you and for me. So I want to mention this before I jump right into this because you have to see the the bigger picture of the the Gospels. Uh, The fourth chapter in Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus had already done this once at the very beginning of his ministry. You remember when he walked in the synagogue at his hometown? It says and he opened up the scroll to Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and he he read it, you know, where it says, uh, the Lord has sent me, the the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and um, to... I'm going to paraphrase, to set the captives free and and to preach the good news to the poor. And you remember Jesus said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sits down. Well, this is what happened when he did that way back when. It says they took him to a cliff and they wanted to throw him off. So that was his first attempt at sharing the good news about how God came in the flesh to, to give his life for his people. His first attempt to do that, his, home, his hometown were ready to throw him off of, of a mountain, a cliff. Not the cheeriest reception, was it? So here, Jesus, knowing that that's what they tried to do to him last time, still does it again. So in this short passage of Scripture, it's going to be just a short message this morning. You can be happy. Um, I'm going to stand up, speak up, and then I'm going to shut up. How's that? So this, this is, I'm in a little bit of a rhyming mood. And this is what we see in the text. When you go home, don't expect a throne, but be prepared to groan. I thought that was all right, but I, I did a second, second crack at it. I like this next one better. I think we're going to put it this way. When confronted with evidence... They took offense and failed the test. That's what I think happens here. When they were confronted with the evidence of who Christ is, they took offense and they failed the test. So let's take a look at that. Look at the first thing we find in the text. They were confronted with the evidence. Look at verse 54. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And notice here, they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. So upon hearing Jesus' teaching firsthand for themselves, notice in the text, their own words condemn them. In amazement, they acknowledge Jesus has uncanny wisdom. They're acknowledging, we never heard anything like this. This man's his wisdom is incredible. It's off the charts. And miraculous powers, we have never seen anything like this. They're acknowledging it. And then they wonder where in the world he got them from. Some, some commentators, uh, and there's truth here, the, the way that they're asking this, in other words, there's the assumption it can't be from God. You get it? You remember we saw earlier the, the Pharisees had enough gall to come right out and say, it's by the devil you got this power. Now the townspeople don't say that, but they basically come right up to that, don't they? They say, where did he get this from? And if you read on, they ask the question, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man, and and then notice, whenever people speak like this, it's never good. Where did this man, they didn't even name him, you know, where did this guy, is the way they're referring to our Lord and Savior, where did this guy get this stuff from? Very impersonal, isn't it? 
In other words, wait a minute. Isn't this the man who used to build furniture with his dad in their little shop on 5th Street? Isn't that his mother Mary? Doesn't she live right down Maple Street right across from my aunt? And, and hey, if I remember so, his brother James, didn't he go to uh, Nazareth High? Wasn't he in the same class as my, my, my buddy uh, Johnny? That's what they're asking. And this is what they're asking. Apprenticing at his dad's carpentry shop hardly qualifies him to be a spiritual leader. In other words, who did he study under? Who gave him his authority to come and talk to us like this? And here's something, it's a side point, but it's a powerful point that in our day and age, because we're bombarded, I'll tell you in a minute with these things, we need to see something here. Here we have proof from the scriptures that all those so-called Gnostic Gospels are full of malarkey. Because the Gnostic Gospels, the so-called Gospel of Thomas, the uh, Gospel according to Judas, Hello, you should know right away there's something wrong with that gospel. You know what I mean? He went and hung himself. Jesus said it's better for that man if he had never been born. I don't think I'm listening to his gospel, even if he were to write it, but it wasn't him. But anyway, in these gospels, supposed gospels, they say that when Jesus was a child, he did all these miraculous things in the townspeople. So the townspeople, according to these gospels, would have known that Jesus was a miracle worker even when he was little. Like in one of them, he makes a clay pigeon and then, and then it becomes a real pigeon. But notice in the text, there's, there's no knowledge ahead of time. Of, oh, well, we know who Jesus is. When he was young, he did a lot of miracles. There's like, wait a minute. He's just a carpenter. In other words, what? There's nothing special about him. When he was growing up like your kid's age, there was, people in school didn't go, ooh, Jesus. There's, he didn't have like a, oh, you know those halos that they show in the pictures? No, Jesus was an ordinary kid. Grew up with their kids. He had an ordinary profession. Um, in, I think it's Mark's gospel, they don't say the carpenter's son. They say, isn't he the carpenter? So the point is, um, he took over his dad's business because he started his public ministry when he was 30. So up till 30, he provided f- by being a carpenter. And so that was just too ordinary for them. They were, sh- they were amazed, they were shocked that Jesus grew up among them and he could perform these miraculous signs. And so this is, why do I bring this up? Because constantly on the so-called history channel, you get these, the lost gospels, or the censored Bible, or, or you, you know, when it was really big to go watch the Da Vinci Code. We don't realize they're based on these spurious false texts that weren't even written during the apostles' time. They were written way after. So I'm just showing you right from the scriptures. It's bogus. So, important. So back to our regularly scheduled program. They were confronted with clear evidence of the incredible wisdom and power demonstrated by Jesus. And yet, in the face of this truly sui generis, one-of-a-kind person standing in front of them, they willingly hardened their hearts and rejected him because of the packaging. You get that? It was too ordinary. It was just too much for them to swallow. And instead instead of receiving him and giving him the the kind of welcome he deserved, when they're confronted with the evidence, they took offense. Look at verse 57. And they took offense at him. Why did they take offense at him? The old saying, you know it, goes like this. Familiarity breeds contempt. 
In other words, he didn't come with pomp and circumstance. He didn't come from the, the recognized rabbinical schools. Or he didn't come from an exotic place. Well, wow, this guy's different. I wonder what's up with him. And he certainly didn't just fall from heaven. Whoosh, bam, Messiah is here. Dun, da, da, da. It's not how he came. Instead, he came right up, rose up right from among them. And he had a humble birth at that. Son of a carpenter. Here's a little neat story I want to tell you because this was really cool. One of my special times when I was over in Italy. I went to a town, an ancient town that my great-grandparents are from called Cesarunca. Now listen, it's a short story. Don't worry, I'm not going to bore you too much. But I, I had been trying to find my roots and, and some people weren't very friendly there and some of the official folk, folks weren't really helping me. And I, I knew one last name of, of some of my, my great-great-grandparents and I was looking around and some of the townspeople were trying to be a little helpful but most of them were kind of like, who's this American, you know? So I'm walking by and it was getting dark and there was this really cool kind of house and it had almost like an opening like we in our country would have like a garage door wide open so everybody could see. And I, I looked in, and it was really cool. It was at, like a carpentry shop. And they were making furniture by hand. And it was, uh, it was two older guys. And so I walked right up, started talking with the little bit of Italian I know. And the interesting thing was they, they came out to join me. They were like, hey. They were super friendly. And I told them my story. I told them who I was looking for. And uh, two things happened. First of all, they ended up saying to me, because I said I went to the two churches, and they couldn't help me here, and blah, blah, blah. And they said, you know, basically cheer up. They said, have you thought about going to the town hall? And look, and I'm like, no. And then they, they were showing me where it was. They were being really helpful. And then they actually helped me find my very first living relative that I know of from that, that town who I'm now friends with on Facebook. And why do I bring up the story is because it just reminds me of when you look at this text, that's what Jesus was. He was a humble carpenter. Not someone in the town that, that would have been known and, and that everybody would have bragged about, oh, you know, I know so-and-so. He's got an important seat in the, in the city town. No, Jesus was one of these two guys. And it's interesting how, on a side note, how it's the humble people are the ones that were the friendliest, right? On a side note. But that, that's, the, that's the kind of upbringing. And that's why for me, myself, I, I grew up the son of a mason, a bricklayer. And I, I feel like, uh, to me, that's an honor because our Lord was the son of a carpenter. Um, and so it warmed my heart to see that. But the problem here is it didn't really warm the heart, hearts of the townspeople, did it? That Jesus was the son of a car, carpenter. From, quite the contrary. It says the word there for the, in the Greek is scandalon. It's where in, in Isaiah where it says Jesus is a rock that makes, causes people to stumble, causes them to fall. That's the word here for offense. It's scandalon. And it says they were scandalized basically, um, if you look at the text, by Jesus. And so I had a God incident happen um, this past week. I'm preparing for this message, and I get a text from Greg Austin, you know, our intern. And he says, Pastor, what did Jesus mean when he said, a prophet is, is uh, without honor only in his hometown and among his own relatives? And I wrote back, get out of here, you're goofing. I said, you're goofing, aren't you? So I thought like maybe Dave or somebody told him that, we're, I, I, you know, that I'm preaching on that. And I said, I said you, did you know I was preaching on that this week? He goes, no, I did not. He goes, God is something, isn't he? I said, yes, he is. So um, what I did was to answer him is, I, I, first of all, I said, funny you should ask. It's, it's a total God incidence. 
I said, this is the way I'll explain it to you. A few years back, um, too bad Caleb walked out because I wanted to be a to witness to this. A couple of years back, I went to visit my, my aunt, Josie, who recently passed away. She was almost 90 years old, my mother's oldest sister. And I went to visit her, and I get to the door, and she sees me, and she goes, who is it? And then she goes, oh, baby Santo. Now, I'm 40-something years old. You with me? And she's saying, baby Santa. I mean, you know, you're so, I'm like, I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, really, baby Santa? When's that ever going to stop, you know? So we go in. I went in with uh, Caleb and with Tori, as a matter of fact. And I'm telling you, I, 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 I kind of shared the gospel with her in the most roundabout, non-confrontational, uh, mellow, as a matter of fact, way that, that I was guilty that I wasn't actually preaching the gospel. You get what I'm saying? Like I quoted from John 3.16, but I didn't actually like aim it at her. I was kind of like over here hoping that she would kind of catch it. And here's the interesting thing. You know, she said to me, Sant, knock it off. I'm already a Christian. Stop trying to make me a Christian. Whoa. I rem- that, res- that response actually, actually shocked me because I wasn't pressing her. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up for two reasons. First of all, she just couldn't accept who it was coming from. Come on, this is a little snotty-nosed Santo, you know, Rosie's youngest boy, who I used to have to drive around to get shoes and clothes because his mother didn't drive. And he's talking to me. And, and plus, I remember all the stories his mother used to tell about how bad he is. And now he's going to tell me. Right? That's what was going on here. And that's what Jesus obviously meant. A prophet is without honor. In his own house. And in his own country. So on a side note, I bring this up to also as a great encouragement for us to humbly obey God's call to humbly uh, present the gospel to all people. Knowing this, no matter how gently, no matter how nicely, no matter how inoffensively we preach the gospel, if people want to take offense, they're going to take offense. You get that, right? Because that's what happened. And believe me, if they were offended by our Lord and Savior, who is the embodiment of grace and truth, how much more as we walk in with His love can we expect often to find the same? She literally took offense. But here's the, here's the thing I want to bring up before I go to the last point, and I think this is where, where the, there's a real punch here in this passage. Even though Jesus knew, because he quoted this to us, only in his hometown and in his own house as a prophet without honor, that didn't stop him from preaching the gospel of the kingdom in his own house and among his own people. You get that? He knew already he wasn't going to get honor, but did that stop him from going to the synagogue like he does other places and opening up the word to them about himself? No. And I say that as an encouragement to us, so that doesn't mean we have to give up and not speak it either. So whether it's my dad, or I'm thinking personally and for you, sometimes we just have to say it. And let it come. And let it come. And here's the interesting thing. At this point in Jesus' ministry, his brothers and sisters did not believe in him. How do I know that? One of my, some kind of 
you know, prophet? Well, no, I'm not. I know that because John chapter 7 tells us his brothers did not believe in him. And he was going up about this time to the feast. But the good news is this. We do hear after he rose from the dead, a few of them did. One of those brothers there mentioned here in this text is James. And in case you didn't know, James became an elder in the church and became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. So at the Jerusalem council, when James gets up to defend the gospel, that's Jesus' physical brother, half-brother. Isn't that cool? And another one that scholars very, uh, very much believe that we have a lot of good evidence for is that Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, was Judas mentioned here. Jesus' brother. And we know Mary ended up receiving Jesus as her own Savior as well. So that's the good news is, see, Jesus did not waste his time preaching and reaching out to his family in his, in his, in his uh, hometown. And who's to say some of those hometown members didn't also later on, by the grace of God, come to faith. So it's not all, as, all bleak. There is some very good news. But in this case, in this point in his ministry, he gave, showed them the evidence. They took offense. And the last thing I want to point out is they failed the test. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And then verse 58. And he did not do many miracles there. Why? Because of their lack of faith. What they didn't realize was that Jesus wasn't the one on trial, was he? They were. Their lack of faith prevented showers of blessing from falling upon them and their town. Didn't it? It blocked the good intentions that God had for them by His grace. It says here, He did not do many miracles because of their lack of faith. Here's the issue. Jesus refused to perform the miracles for the hard-hearted because they were obstinate rejectors. Michael Williams puts it this way. Hard-heartedness and rejection prevents the ministry of the Spirit's healing even as it presents, uh, prevents the forgiveness of sins. Now listen, we have to make a difference between what's going on here and what we hear of from the prosperity gospel. That's not what's going on here. I want you to see that. It's not that our faith controls God's power. It's not that God is the genie in the lamp and if I just have enough faith, He's going to do whatever I want. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is Jesus already has a program. As you know, He went around healing and doing good wherever He went and and doing miracles, right? And pointing to the fact that He's the Messiah. And as He was on that program, in this particular instance, they themselves didn't trust Him enough for Him to continue His program there. Very different than me deciding who gets healed and when. You with me? The main point that we should get out of this is this. It's from, remember what the writer of the Hebrew says. Hebrew Christians. Without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. That's what we see here. That's a big uh, emphasis in the Gospel of Matthew as well as the, all the Gospels. Um, when it comes to our relationship with God, the bottom line is, this could sound profound, we have to trust Him, don't we? It's all about trust. It's all about a matter of trust. 
We see it again and again, and I'm just going to quote a few places from Matthew. The centurion, remember when he said, Lord, only say the word and my servant will be healed? When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And remember what he said, go, your servant's already healed. 9-2, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw what? Their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. It was faith, wasn't it? 9.22, Jesus turned to the woman who had an issue of blood. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. One more, 9.22 in Matthew's Gospel. Then he touched their eyes of the blind men and said, according to your faith will it be done to you. Now listen, that's what the Christian life is all about from the beginning to the end. Faith unto faith. It's putting your trust, your full weight, all of your confidence in Jesus of Nazareth, isn't it? Believe in His promises. Paul Settle, I, like, I quote from him a lot, this one quote, because I think he puts it so well. Faith is enough because Jesus is enough. You know, how come we're only saved by faith alone is the question? Because our faith connects us with the One who has done the work that we can't do. Amen? Luther said this, Thus the soul, in firmly believing the promises of God, holds him to be true and righteous. And it can attribute to God no higher glory than the credit of being so. Now listen, this is powerful. The highest worship of God is to ascribe to him truth, righteousness, and whatever qualities we must ascribe to in the one in whom we believe. And that's just, that's just it in this text, isn't it? It's saying to Jesus, I trust that what you say about me is right. That I'm a depraved sinner and without you I'm completely lost and I deserve punishment and I cannot save myself. And I believe you are who you say you are. You are God. Come visit us in the flesh and come to deliver us from our sins. That's what faith is. And faith saves. It unites us with the living Christ who has done these things for us. And it gives God the highest glory, the highest honor, because it says you are right when you, ju- when you judge. You are just when you judge. And you are right when you say these judgments. Amen? Because the world doesn't believe. You get that? They do not believe, number one, they're that bad. That's the problem, isn't it? When you preach the gospel, one of the biggest uh, uh, stumbling blocks for folks to get to is that they are sinful and they need a Savior. It's as simple as that. Because it's not all that bad, they want to say. And Jesus says, yes, it is. If it wasn't all that bad, I would have certainly not gone to the cross. And then the other part is that, well, he's not that good. I mean, who is this man? He came from Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter. You know, he might have been a good teacher, but he was... Jesus says he was much more than that, doesn't he? Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the whole point is they're pointing to the fact that He is the Son of the living God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And God is exalted and He's honored when we agree with Him from the heart and fully entrust ourselves to Him and receive Him as He's presented to us in the Word of God, not in our own ideas about who He is. 
That's why we go through the gospel to see the real Jesus. One of the main points of Matthew's entire gospel is not simply that we'll trust in Jesus for physical healing, but rather that we'll come to him for spiritual healing and eternal life. That's the point. And that was the tragedy of Jesus' hometown. Is that when God came to visit them, they rejected him and sent them packing. So when confronted with the evidence, they took offense and they failed the test. Two applications, and then we'll pray. Obviously, the question you have to ask is, what about you? Is it just you always hear about Jesus, you go to church, praise the Lord, amen, but have you really received Him? Do you know Him personally? Do you love Him because of what He's done for you on the cross? Or you like these townspeople, ah, he's just a familiar thing. It breeds contempt, contempt. Or are you willing to identify with the crucified, the one who demonstrated his power in weakness, who calls us to walk with him in humility and in his humiliation because someday we will then walk with him in his glory when he's glorified. That's the one application. The other application I want to close with is this. If Jesus wasn't exempt himself from that old saying of prophets without honor in his own house and among his own people, then neither will we be. And so the word of God is telling us to to man up or woman up, to be uh, politically correct, to take courage and play the man or play the woman and be willing to share the gospel whether we know it's already predisposed, the, 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 the um, context is already predisposed against us or not. Because we know that this is how God has chosen to save his people is through the proclamation of his good news. And we know that some will be saved, even as we see some of Jesus' family members eventually did get saved. So be encouraged. Don't be discouraged when you're rebuffed. Don't be discouraged and don't say, well, I'm not trying that again. That's our normal MO, isn't it? Like once you try, ooh. That's it. I got burnt. I'm not doing it again. No, Jesus says, hey, that was just a warm-up. It's just going to make you tougher. It's just going to get you ready so that you're stronger and able to do it again. Let's pray. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.